This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. I'm your host, E. Spencer Kite, taping this on Sunday night, just minutes after UFC Fight Night 88 in Las Vegas has completed. Joined this week, making his return back from the dead, back from the sick bay, Patrick Shiviklinski. Patty, just one word. How would you sum up tonight's event? Um, fun. That, I think that's the word for me. I mean, uh, just a great night of fights and a lot of fun takeaways. I'm, I'm ready to get into it. I'm ready to talk all about it. It was a great night. Yeah, going into this event, one of the things we sh- we said, and Sean Shadi and I talked about it, on the show uh, a few days ago as we previewed it. Just one of those cards with not a ton of big names, but a lot of potentially entertaining fights. I think that's the way it played out. I know there were a bunch of decisions, um, but for the most part, they were entertaining fights, save for maybe, you know, Abel Trujillo's win over Jordan Rinaldi. Not great. Sarah mm-hmm. McMahon, Jessica I was a bit of a snoozer, um, which has kind of become characteristic for those two women but I thought the entire main card was a really enjoyable six-fight main card. I know they drag out. I know it becomes really long. But it was a good night of entertaining fights from guys that are just kind of in the fringes of, of the top 15 and, and kind of finding their footing. So not a bad way to spend a Sunday night. Not at all. I mean, I, I think all the fights were definitely, uh, you know, I think the matchups were really good for this card, and, and you can definitely see that in the, in the quality of fights that we got to see. Like you said, a lot of decisions, but at the same time, all the fights were very exciting. I mean, you know, save for a couple, obviously, but um, for the most part, I think it was a really good night. A lot of great matchmaking, and I really enjoyed the card overall, for sure. So we'll jump right into it, starting with the main event. Um the one fight on the main card that didn't go to a decision. It didn't even make it past the three-minute mark of the first round as Cody Nolove Garbrandt, who was on this show last week on Tuesday, predicting a first-round knockout finish of Thomas Almeida, goes out and delivers in spectacular fashion. Uh, Starts quick, comes out of the gate, throwing right away. You see the quick hands, you see the power. The first couple shots sort of Looked like they woke Thomas Almeida up a little bit and put him in that, okay, I need to retaliate mode. And that actually proved to be his downfall because Cody continued to fire, continued to snipe and and land with power and put him down, as I said, in under three minutes. A phenomenal performance for the now 9-0 Team Alpha Male Bantamweight. Absolutely. I mean, that, that sums it up. I mean, phenomenal performance. Cody Garbrandt, he got it done. He called his shot and... Um... It was it was a performance that to me, I mean, it threw me off a bit. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I think it I think it threw most of us off. You know, obviously the the hype train that is Thomas Almeida, who has you know up to um, you know this point looked fantastic in there and, and such a violent fighter and one of those guys that 
when he really gets hit, he seems to sort of wake up, and that's when he sort of gets going. But that never happened because Cody Garbrandt did not give him the opportunity to do so. So, um, I mean, I was just very impressed with, with No Love's performance. I mean, just the the intent to hurt on all the shots he was landing. I mean, they were quick strikes that were hitting so hard. It was such a great performance from him, and I think it was um, one that is going to propel him into that superstar status. And, I mean, for Thomas Almeida, it's, it's a learning experience for him as well, but I mean, you have to give it up to, to Garbrandt for, you know, coming in there and executing his game plan perfectly and not wavering, just putting, you know, the foot to the gas right from the get-go. And, I mean, not stopping until he got that finish. And I just thought, top to bottom, he looked fantastic in there. We talk a lot about how the UFC needs to work to create stars and ways that they can potentially build new stars. And one of the things that we often talk about is giving guys in this position, young up-and-comers that are very talented, the opportunity to shine. I thought it made a lot of sense given these two undefeated bantamweights, the main event spotlight. Cody Garbrandt proved that out on Sunday night, going out and getting what I think can be a star-making performance. I mean, you won't find many bigger Cody Nolove fans than me. I've gotten a chance to hang out with him, talk to him a bunch of times, consider him a guy that I'm friendly with beyond just, hey, how are you doing? You're a fighter. I'm the journalist talking to you. He is wildly popular. He is charismatic and engaging. He's a good-looking kid. If you don't like the tattoos, that's mm-hmm. cool, but there are lots of... I've, had, I've been around him with lots of girls are screaming at him. Uh, he's a good-looking <laughs> kid. He's well-spoken. He's easy to root for, and I think on the heels of a performance like this, where he goes out, earns a beautiful... KO victory on national TV in a main event um, gets that platform. This, as you said, could be the kind of fight that launches him to superstar status because one of the things we like to do on this show is, is instant analysis and sort of instant looking ahead. What's next for him? Where do you go from here after a performance like that? Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing is after seeing a performance like that, I mean, the natural reaction is you want to sort of put him in against another killer and to see how he'd, you know, do against, uh, you know, another elite talent. You you want to kind of see him have that progression quickly. But as we know, um, you know, as we've seen many times, that can have a, you know, a bad side effect. And um, that's something I wouldn't want. Um, you know, to happen to, to Cody Garbrandt. I think he's certainly ready to mix it up with, with the best in that division, but I don't think there's any reason to rush it at this point in time. I mean, um, there's a guy on this card, as uh, you know, we're going to talk about a little later on, uh, Mr. Brian Caraway, who I think would be a interesting test for, um, for Cody Garbrandt. Definitely a def- uh, different set of skills um, as opposed to Thomas Almeida. Um, that he brings to the table. You know, I think that he needs a, a one more fight that maybe is sort of a, not not a tune-up fight necessarily, but just a fight to kind of gauge, you know, where he's at among this top 10 in the bantamweight division. Because there's a lot of guys circling that very, very top that, you know, uh, you, you look at those guys like uh, uh, TJ Dillashaw and, 
and you know the Dominic Cruises and the and the Uriah Faber, you know, who are fighting at UFC 199 next week. And I don't know if he's quite there yet, but I think that he's maybe one or two steps away from that. And you know, I'd, I'd like to see him get another fight against a solid veteran, um, just to see how he handles. Fight, fighting against the veteran guy because it's one thing to fight against a guy like Thomas Almeida, who is a uh, you know fantastic fighter, no doubt. You know, action pushes the pace, but very young and still very green even going into this fight. So um, a fight with a guy like a Brian Caraway, someone who is a veteran of the sport, I think that would be an interesting next kind of step for for Cody Garbrandt. Definitely, as you said, a fight that we will talk about a little bit more later in the show when we get to Brian Caraway's performance on this card. I do like the idea. I'm not so sure Brian Caraway would like the idea. <laughs> One of the interesting offshoots of this is that, as Cody said in his post-fight interview with John Anik, can he get some love now? Not even ranked in the top 15 coming into this. It's understandable. He was 3-0 and in the UFC. Bantamweight has become a deeper division over the last you know, 8, 12, 18 months, even if you want to go back that far with guys like John Lineker and John Dodson debuting and looking good, Jimmy Rivera coming on board, um, Thomas Almeida even making that climb in that period. There are a ton of options. There are a lot of interesting fights out there. We have a bunch of them coming up over the next few weeks, as you mentioned. Faber Cruz for the title next week, TJ Dillashaw and Rafael Asensao running it back at UFC 200. One of the ones that sort of just sticks out for me is the Michael McDonald-John Lineker fight that's coming up July 13th in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Cody was originally scheduled to fight John Lineker in February in Pittsburgh. That fell through at the last minute. John Lineker came down with dengue fever and was pulled from the fight. I know it's one that he really wanted. We talked about it on the show last week. I think that's kind of that level that I would like to see the winner of that one get him in there I do like the idea of Caraway, someone that is a very different stylistic matchup see how he does against a guy with a ton of heart a ton of resolve and is a very good grinder but I also really like the idea of just seeing Cody Garbrandt go in there and chuck bombs with somebody like Lineker or like Michael McDonald who has been in there for the title before back when Henan Burrell was the inter interim champion so I guess the real takeaway is that there are a ton of options and bantamweight might be the most entertaining and interesting division in the UFC right now. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's one of those things that, you know, we probably wouldn't even be saying this even like a, about a year ago. I mean, now the possibilities for great matchups in the bantamweight division seem kind of endless. You know, there's tons of options for, for no love to get a great fight. And I really love that idea of, of having him go against a Michael McDonald or John Lineker, the winner of that fight. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, you could go um, a lot of different ways with, with Cody Garbrandt. Honestly, you could take that route. You could take the veteran route. Depends on, you know, where the UFC is feeling that, uh, you know, would be the best fit for him moving forward right now. Well, and two, what you said about the division probably not being in the spotlight, even... 12 months ago, I talked to Dominic, Dominic Cruz on Friday about it and sort of said, like, not to not to take away from TJ Dillashaw, but Dominic's return and coming back right into that title fight, going out in January and having that fight seemed to be what really brought all the attention back and, and made us super keen on the division. We were, you know, TJ winning the title from Hen and Barrow 
was an incredible moment. It put a lot of attention on the division that wasn't there when Hennenborough was champion. But then it sort of waned a little because he fought Joe Soto. And then he had the rematch with Hennenborough and, and beat him in even more dominant fashion. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And some fights fell through. And it, it didn't really have any momentum. But Dom came back. We got that fight. And then things just sort of lined up right. We suddenly had the Aljamain Sterling's Thomas Almeida's Cody Garbrandt's guys that we've already talked about building their way up to where this division that even a year ago really wasn't on the radar and wasn't generating a lot of attention for the UFC or a lot of interest from casual fans has now become one of the most must-see divisions. And I think it's imperative that the UFC continues to give it that spotlight. It's great to see, you know, we're always going to see championship fights in the main event or co-main event spot. That's a given. But it's great to see Almeida and Garbrandt get this main event assignment. It's great to see Lineker and McDonald in the co-main event spot on that June thir- or July 13th sorry, fight card with Tony Ferguson and Michael Chiesa in the main event. Continue doing that. Continue pushing this weight class because Cody, Cody No Love showed it tonight. There are dudes that have power, are wildly exciting, and there's a bunch of them. So keep giving this division attention. Absolutely. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite, Patrick Shiviklinski talking about UFC Fight Night 88, UFC Las Vegas, whatever you want to call it. Running through some of the main takeaways and highlights for both of us from this show. Co-main event, Jeremy Stevens goes out and gets a very good, what I would call a veteran win, over Henan Burrell, the former bantamweight title holder, moving up to featherweight for the first time. As I said, as we were sort of setting up for this, don't want to spend too much time talking about Jeremy Stevens himself. I think it was a very good win. Kind of a typical Jeremy Stevens win. Throws a lot of power, able to take a lot of shots. Surprised that Henan Burrell didn't drop from some of those because mm-hmm. they almost knocked me out just watching them. <laughs> But the bigger question for me is, where does Henan Barrow go from here? A lot of reaction instantly on social media following this fight, saying, you know, after 30-some-odd fights where he went undefeated, Henan Barrow is now 1-3 in in his last four fights. As Sean and I talked about last week, setting up this event, even that victory over Mitch Gagnon in Nova Scotia, you were there for that event, didn't look great. Is this a matter of people have caught up to him? Has... You know, the damage of all those years of, of fighting caught up to Hennon Barrow? Or is this just one of those ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys kind of things where give him a couple fights, maybe he readjusts and we see sort of a second chapter from a once dominant champion? Yeah, I tend to uh, agree, you know, with the, with the latter of what you just said, definitely with the ebbs and flows. I mean, the the big takeaway, I think, if you're a Hennon Barrow fan and you watch this fight, was he looked great in that first round. He was moving well. Um, he was doing all the right things. Um, I think that, you know, in that second and third round, he got a little bit tired. He kept, you know, going for that takedown. Um, after takedown, he kept trying that, and that seemed to tire him out, you know, quite a bit. So there was some issues, I mean, with his performance that, you know, just with um, certain adjustments that he could do, I think he'd be a lot more dangerous. But, I don't think he looked, you know, completely out of place like some people are, you know, blowing him up on Twitter or anything like that. You know, I think that um, Burrell had a solid, you know, performance overall. He got rocked 
a couple times by, you know, a very savvy vet and Jeremy Stevens. And, you know, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, these type of things happen, you know, you get hot and cold in your career and he just needs to readjust. And um, for this 145 pound division, I still think that, you know, uh, it, it's a good spot for him to be in. He did look good. Like I said, in that first round, he was moving very well. He looked comfortable, but I'd like to see more of that on a consistent basis. If he can do that um, will be another, you know, question definitely. But um, I think that performance wise, uh, 145 pounds is probably the optimal place for him to be at at this point in time. I don't see, you know, going back to 135 being a good idea, especially when you got guys like Cody Garbrandt waiting for you there. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I just think that it's one of those things where Henry Brown needs to kind of, you know, take some time, uh, readjust, you know, um, just – kind of do, you know, go back to the fundamentals, go back to the basics and work on, you know, cardio and stuff like that. He's still a very talented guy. And there were definitely, you know, very bright moments in that first round where you saw a little bit of it. You saw a flash of that old hand and brow, you know, with, with the quick hands, you know, um, there were moments where you were like, oh, he's just about to do it. But then, you know, it didn't happen for, you know, for one reason or another. And, uh, it, it's frustrating watching a guy so talented, you know, not be able to pull the trigger like, uh, you know, he hasn't been able to. So I think that he just needs to readjust, take some time, focus, you know, in, in training camp, whatever he needs to do, um, and just get back to fundamentals. I'm normally at the forefront of the pump the brakes on Colin Guy's shot and saying that they're never going to be the same. This is a guy that I think is just never going to be the same. I mean, you're saying, you know, needs to take some time. He's coming off 10 months since the second TJ Dillashaw fight where he got stopped in the fourth round. That came a year and change after the first TJ Dillashaw fight where he got stopped in the fifth round and rocked right out of the gate and and said very candidly after that fight, you know, I never recovered from that first shot. I was kind of on autopilot I don't really remember a ton of that fight. I think this is a guy that, after more than a decade as a pro and almost 40 fights, it's just caught up to him. There's a certain point where athletically and physically, you don't have it anymore. And and sometimes that decline happens very slowly. Sometimes it is right off the edge of the cliff, Wiley Coyote style, Hmm. where you just plummet silently until we see the cloud of smoke at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I think Hennem Burrell might be in that. That's not to say that I don't think he can get some wins going forward, depending on the matchup with some guys sort of in that middle pack of the featherweight division. But I mean, not to take anything away from Jeremy Stevens, but this is the number nine ranked fighter in this division. Um, A guy that has really been kind of that, that, gatekeeper to the top 10, you know, beat Dennis Bermudez, but lost to the Cub Swanson's Max Holloway's of the world, lost to Charles Oliveira. So you sort of know where Jeremy Stevens fits. And Henan Barrow, as you said, looked very good in the first round, but then came out flat, went to went to wrestling, which to me was the big red flag of like, why is Henan Barrow suddenly trying to become a wrestler? Something's not right here. Kudos to him for taking the shots. But I don't know if he's a guy that can beat some of these top 15 fighters in the featherweight division. Like, if you threw him in there 
tomorrow with, or not tomorrow, but his next fight with Yair Rodriguez or Mirsad Bektik, two super talented, super young kids on the come up. I'm taking the kids over the former champion every day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> and I think it's because Barrow's just in that decline that comes after years and years of putting yourself through a grueling weight cut to make 35, which I don't think he can do anymore, given the IV ban, given the history we know where he you know, had to pull out of a fight with TJ Dillashaw at the 11th hour because he passed out during his weight cut. I just don't think there's a lot left for him, but it sounds like you think I might be writing him off too soon. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, I mean, I agree with a lot of the points that you just made and it definitely, you know, you can definitely tell that there's something, you know, I mean, a lot of wear after, you know, a decade of, of fighting, obviously, and especially the style in which he fought, you know, uh, when he was champion, when he was so dominant, I mean, so explosive, so exciting, very physically, you know, uh, demanding to fight like that time in and time out. And um, I think that def- there's definitely a part of me that thinks, yeah, I don't I don't know if he has the, you know, athletic ability to, you know, move forward and keep up and, and be a champion again. But at the same time, I, I do think that a big part of this for him is, is mental as well. Um, looking at, you know, a guy who was as dominant as he was and kind of going back and, you know, all due respect, like you said, to Jeremy Stevens, but losing to a guy like Jeremy Stevens now puts him in a weird spot where he's doubting himself. And I'm not sure that, you know, he'll be able to bounce back from that, you know, as, you know, as easily as, you know, other guys will, because when you're a former champion, you, you know, you have a lot of pride and, I think for him, he takes a lot of these losses, you know, to heart as a lot of guys do. And I'm just not sure that he'll be able to sort of shake this one off and just go into the next fight against, like you said, you know, one of these, you know, younger guys in the division who, you know, are hungry and want it more than Hen and Burrell. So um, I guess I'm a little more worried about his (laughs) sort of mental state than anything else. And um, I, I think that, the, the physical tools, I mean, definitely, um, you know, he has all the skills. But like you right. said, there's a, lot, there's a lot of wear on the body. I think that plays a factor. But I, I'm just worried about his sort of mental um, state moving forward. To me, it has a lot of parallels to Anthony Pettis, a guy that was the mm. lightweight champion, goes out, gets trucked by Rafael Dos Anjos, and hasn't won since, hasn't looked like the same explosive, aggressive entertaining fighter that you know was running off the side of the cage and kicking Ben Henderson in the face and throwing all kinds of crazy offense at Donald Cerrone in their in their fight on Fox a couple years back has looked like a guy that is equal parts shook and equal parts lost that competitive edge that he had for so long where he was just faster and more creative and more dynamic and could beat you with speed and catch you off balance. And and I think that's a lot of what Burrell was. You look at some of these fights that he had during his climb to the top and his time at the top, where he's beating Eddie Wineland in the first round, and he's getting that quick finish over Uriah Faber, and he's pretty much handling Michael McDonald throughout that title defense in London, where he's not really facing a ton of adversity. And then all of a sudden, he walks into a fight that You know, a lot of people were saying this is going to be a layup for him against TJ Dillashaw at UFC 173. 
two years ago now and goes out there and just gets smoked. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think you're right that some of it is mental, but I also think that those last three fights, those last three losses have taken something off of him that we're starting to see. And and this is one of the things that I want to continue watching with guys as they get to this stage of their career where they've had 10, 15, 20 fights in the UFC where they've been battles, they've been high-level guys, does that damage and do those losses suddenly start slowing you down that much quicker? I think we're seeing it with Anthony Pettis. I do think there's room for both he and Barrow to rebound, but I'm really curious to see. That next fight is going to be the telling one for me, both in terms of who they match him up with and how he looks. If he goes out and beats a top 15 guy, a top 20 guy, and looks really good... I will walk back most of what I said and give him that next fight after that. But I can just as easily see him going out and fighting somebody like Darren Elkins or fighting somebody like Hakron Diaz, who he wouldn't fight because they're teammates and, and, and countrymen, but somebody in that range and getting beat and it just being one of those fights where you're like, this dude's just done. I mean, I, I think Jake Ellenberger was a phenomenal fighter for a number of years and a great contender in the welterweight division, but he's just hit that point where he doesn't have it anymore. He can go out there and and look the part, and he can throw and look good in moments, and he looked good in moments in his last fight, but the overall package isn't there, and I I think that's where we're at with Barrow. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I mean, and like you said, the next fight I think is going to be the real tough one to to see. I mean... It's it's frustrating, like I said, I mean, to watch a guy, because you see it. You do see the skill there. I mean, you see everything, the, the movement in that first round. You saw, you know, just those, those glimpses of that old kind of route, but he just couldn't keep it, you know, going consistently for three rounds. And he just looked, you know, sort of um, when he got hit for the first time by Jeremy Stevens, something just kind of went off, I think. And, and it didn't look like he was himself. And. I really do uh, think that Anthony Pettis parallel is, is a great example because same two same kind of guys, you know, very exciting fighters. And I mean, when you're when you're kind of you know revving the engine as much as those guys are, I mean, the, the RPMs are just going crazy, you know what I mean? And, and uh, at, a, the, at a certain point, you blow that engine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's and that's where I think we'll see what happens to Hennon Brown next, and whether that engine is blown or whether he just needs to go get it fixed. <laughs> e. Spencer Kite, Patrick Shiviklinski, the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio, talking UFC fight night, Almeida versus Garbrandt, that ended just about 40 minutes ago in Las Vegas on Sunday night, Memorial Day in the United States. All the way down to the fight pass preliminary portion of this card, what we both thought was one of the more important fights on the night between Brian Caraway and Aljamain Sterling. We alluded to it earlier. Brian Caraway goes out and gets a workmanlike victory over a previously unbeaten Aljo, a guy that a lot of people, myself included, pegged for future contender status, you know, maybe a guy that had a look of, of a potential champion. I think it's still there, but this is a moment where you just take your cap off, give Brian Caraway his due, and let the guy enjoy this moment because he's a guy that is perennially counted out, perennially ripped for being a supportive <laughs> contributor 
to his girlfriend's career, Misha Tate, helping her get to the top of... That's one of the funny things to me. Like, this dude gets ripped for being a loving, supportive boyfriend <laughs> who has been an influential, a positive influence on his girlfriend's career. Like, if that's what we're ripping people for, then people can feel free to rip me and call me, Miss, you know... Mr. Cole all the time because I'm loving and supporting of my wife and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So for me, it's just hats off to Brian Caraway. Enjoy this moment and a hell of a performance from a guy that you know spent the first round playing defense. Yeah, I mean, and how appropriate is it that he is dating Misha Tate because that same kind of heart, right? I mean, that Misha, Misha Tate showed in that you know Holly Holm fight. Was very similar to sort of what we saw from Brian Caraway. Not maybe not to that extent, but definitely that sort of um, you know uh, will not to you know give up on the fight because Aljamain Sterling certainly you know put it on in that first round, and I I think a lot of people thought, okay, well this is going to be you know Aljo's night, but uh, you know Brian Caraway you know hung in there and, and did a lot of great things, and um, you know that second and third round he just you know, did what he had to do to, to win, you know, and I think that was very reminiscent of, of a certain, you know, uh, women's bantamweight champion, <laughs> you know, in, in her performance. And um, I, I think it's, you know, just a testament to sort of Brian Caraway being, you know, a consummate professional and being a vet, you know, uh, coming in there and not panicking in a situation where you got a young guy like Algernon Sterling, uh, Sterling on you and really kind of, physically pushing you um a lot of guys would fold under that but you know uh definitely for brian caraway i think he you know saw the situation and uh kind of calmed himself down and, and knew that you know it's it's a three-round fight the the fight isn't over after a round and as we saw sterling got a bit tired after that first round i think he you know uh certainly you know blew a lot of his energy uh, trying to trying to get you know that finish in the first round of Caraway, but um, yeah, it just stood out for me. I think it was a like I said, I mean you know kind of like a workmanlike performance from Caraway, but one that you know he showed a lot of heart and a lot of determination, and um, I don't you know particularly know if it you know propels him into that next level. You know, it, right. it wasn't it wasn't necessarily you know a stunning victory, but it's one of those victories that. You know, he kind of, uh, you know, showed a young guy that, listen, hey, you know, you still got lots to learn. <laughs> well, and it's one of those fights, and, and I agree with you, that I don't think it necessarily carries him into the title conversation. Even though Aljamain Sterling was ranked number four in the division going into this, Brian Caraway enters at number eight. Those will probably change to some degree. Cody Garbrandt will get thrown into that top ten mix as well. And you look at Brian Caraway's track record, he does have a loss, again, that Nova Scotia card, to Rafael Asensau, a guy that is fighting TJ Dillashaw at UFC 200 and is clearly one of the top contenders in this division. But for me, it, it speaks volumes about who Brian Caraway is as a fighter and the importance of fight IQ. I mean, he did a great job, as you said, in that first round of not panicking, not expending too much energy, just playing defense, defending the hands well, making sure that he didn't get caught, making sure that he didn't give himself up in any spot. And you saw when the when the horn sounded, he just popped right up, goes to his corner, and he's fine, and comes out and understands, okay, I lost that round. It might even be a 10-8 round. Who knows? 
I need to go on the offensive. I need to be the guy dictating the terms of this fight. I can't let Aljamain Sterling get in on me and do the things that he wants to do. I just spent three minutes defending back mount. I need to go on the on the offensive. And he did that. And he went out and out-wrestled a guy that we all think, and rightfully so, is a very good grappler. Has hit some very interesting finishes over the last couple of fights. And goes out and picks up his second straight win. You look at his resume, and, and I mean, outside of the Asensao fight, he, that could be his only loss. You know, the the old, only other loss in his UFC career to date is the split decision with Takeya Mizugaki, the infamous Just Coast Brian fight, um, where, you know, he kind of did coast in the third round, and, and it was a coin flip fight. But that really changes the way you look at him, and, and as we said, sort of setting this up. One of the reasons this dude gets discredited is because he is Misha Tate's boyfriend. And, and I'll be quite honest, I've spoken to Brian Caraway in the past about being Misha Tate's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. He has openly admitted that this shit was hard for him for a number of years. Because here's my girlfriend getting all of this attention, winning a championship in Strike Force, absolutely thrilled for, loves to see her success. But you want to have that for yourself as well. And so it takes some time to adjust to it. It takes some time to get used to things. And the other thing that both he and Misha have talked about in the past is the importance of setting up shop and being stationed in Las Vegas at Extreme Couture, having a home base, having a team around them, having coaches like Robert Fallis in their corner to help them with the mental side of things and the work that they've been able to put in over the last three, four years We've seen it in Misha's performance since that fight with Ronda Rousey. We're seeing it in Brian Caraway now. A phenomenal victory. As we have to do, where the hell does this dude go next? Yeah. Because um, we talked about Cody Nolove, and I do think that that makes sense. Because, as we said, styles make fight. Nice to see. Nice to see a grappler get in there with Cody Garbrandt, who has some wrestling in his back pocket, but likes to, likes to sling the leather. Yeah. But as much as Brian Caraway tried to avoid the fight with Aljamain Sterling and drew out that process for a while, yeah. I think he'd probably think twice about jumping in with Cody Garbrandt right about now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's some light heavyweights out there that might, you know, think twice <laughs> about going against Cody Garbrandt. Uh, you know, he's a scary dude. But I, I tend to agree. I mean, when you look at the outlook of the bantamweight division, I mean, at who's available to fight at this particular point in time, I mean, it, it does make sense timing-wise to kind of make a fight happen right. between him and, and Nola, but um, obviously not a fight that, you know, he's probably, you know, stoked about. But if, if he's serious about, you know, really getting into that championship picture, that title shot picture, he's going to have to go through one of these <laughs> right. guys, you know what I mean? So. Why not? This is uh, the problem. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I think for, I, I think it does give Caraway, you know, a, a pretty big confidence boost. As you know, uh, as much as you know, maybe the win wasn't super, super, you know, impressive. Of you know, it wasn't a finish or whatever against Aljo. He still, you know, um, won against the number four ranked bantamweight <laughs> right. in the division, right? So um, that has to give him, you know, some confidence moving forward. So. I think that a fight with Garbrandt, you know, I'd say, man, call Brian Caraway the youth slayer, man. Bring it on. <laughs> I mean, I, it's one of those things, right? Like, we we say that maybe he doesn't want it, but maybe it's exactly the fight he wants. Maybe it's 
he's at a point now where he, he does say, you know what, I just beat number four. This kid shouldn't be ahead of me. This, you know, these guys that are ahead of me now, like Michael McDonald, I think is a hell of a fighter, but he spent two years on the sidelines where he wasn't fighting yet. He's ranked ahead of Brian Caraway, who remained active and has picked up some victories. I think John Dodson might be an interesting fight just as a guy that obviously has a name, is coming off a great debut performance back in the division with his knockout of Manny Gamburian on the Fox show in Tampa not that long ago, um, and would be an interesting style clash because of the speed, because of the power, versus Caraway's clearly talented top game and, and grappling game. I think the winner of that McDonald-Lineker fight makes sense. It just really is going to come down to sort of the direction the UFC wants to take and, and how Sean Shelby sort of matches up these abundant options that he has. I mean, I think a fight with a guy like Jimmy Rivera, who's on the come up and has picked up a couple of good wins in the UFC would be interesting. But I don't know that that's something that coming off a win, as you said, over the number four guy, Brian Caraway is going to be like, yeah, let me fight this mm-hmm. dude that's number 14 in the division and nobody knows about. So a lot of options, a lot of ways this can go. For right now, it's hats off to Brian Caraway, a underrated dude in a great division that we said this show was going to be the spotlight on the bantamweight division, and I think it very much was. So congratulations to the UFC for putting it together, getting the results that really showed why this division is worth paying attention to going into a bantamweight title fight next week in Los, in, in Los Angeles. It's the Keyboard Kimura Podcast, Province Sports Radio, E. Spencer Kite. He is Patrick Shiviklinski. Before we get out of here, we don't want to go through all of the rest of the card. But, Patty, who's somebody else on the card that, that really stood out for you that you're now looking forward to seeing compete again that maybe you weren't going into this I mean, show? Yeah, I think that uh, the, the guy that really stood out for me in terms of, and I mean, the the way you set that up was real nice because I wasn't looking forward to seeing <laughs> this guy maybe uh, coming in before. All due respect to him, but Eric Koch, man, he um, he had a great performance against Shane Campbell, very tough guy, you know, BC zone, and he came out there and, and put on a very good performance and uh, got, the, uh, got the rear naked choke in the second round there. Um, after, you know, a, a round where, you know, kind of he um, was going back and forth a little bit. I think that Eric Koch's one of those guys, especially after, you know, a two-year layoff for him, uh, he needed a win badly. And um, he was one in three going into this fight. I think, you know, he was certainly on the chopping block. Um, you know, the, the t- clock was sort of ticking for him. And uh, he came out and bought himself, you know, some time definitely <laughs> with, with, with a great win. And I think Eric Koch is one of those guys that um, he's an immensely talented fighter. Um, just had a lot of, you know, kind of bad bad luck in some ways and in other ways just, you know, can't, can't get it done in certain situations. I'm really looking forward to see if he can, you know, really put a couple wins together. And, you know, this is, you know, he was supposed to fight Joe Proctor in this fight. But in a lot of ways, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Shane Campbell is, is a very good test for him as well. So um, I think moving forward, it'll be interesting to see what we get from Eric Koch. He's obviously been a little bit inconsistent in the past few fights. But, I mean, you look at the guys that, you know, he's been mashed up again and lost to. I mean, Ricardo Lamas, Dustin Poirier, 
those are guys who are very high level guys. You know, Derek Cruikshank, another very tough guy. You know, head kick loss. That's when you know Cruikshank was knocking everybody out with head kicks. So it'll be interesting to to see what we get from um, you know Eric Coke kind of moving forward. But definitely a guy who is you know much hype at one point in time, and now I think that. He's got sort of that expectation off of him. I don't think people see him as that, you know, um, hype train of Eric Koch as, you know, he once was when he was entering the UFC. Now it's just about him and kind of focusing on kind of rebuilding and and getting his sort of feet wet in that lightweight division and, and really getting some good fights under his belt. Yeah, still just 27 years old, a guy that, as he said in his in his victory interview with John Anik, was once supposed to fight Jose Aldo for the featherweight title. Um, that fight originally stationed for Calgary at UFC 149, way back when, one of the many fights that fell off of that card, I think once or twice. And, and as you said, you look at the guys that he lost to, he was the favorite going into that fight with Ricardo Lamas on the Fox show headlined by Demetrius Johnson and John Dodson in January, 2013. He was kind of a coin flip with Dustin Poirier going into that fight, had a bunch of injuries, moved up to the lightweight division, didn't like the weight cut. Um, it didn't agree with him. He felt he would be better at lightweight, had a number of injuries that delayed him coming back since that fight with Darren Crookshank. But I think the biggest thing you said and that I think you're 100% right on, is that now some of that pressure is gone. Now the spotlight isn't there, matured a little, had to go through some of these trials and tribulations. Because when you're rolling along and things are going well, and things are going well for your gym, and your boy's on the come up and eventually gets to be the lightweight champion, everything just feels like it's awesome and you're indestructible. and And maybe the focus isn't there. Maybe the attention to detail isn't there. Maybe you're not taking things as seriously as you could. Nothing is going to put that in check more than two years away from what you love to do. I know he was still training. Obviously, he came in in very good shape and gets a very good win. But I agree with you, a guy that definitely was flying under the radar going into this. Not that he's instantly in the conversation at lightweight, which is the deepest, most talent-rich division in the UFC, but I'm now interested in seeing the next step for Eric Koch, and that isn't something I expected to say coming into this event. <laughs> the guy for me, and, and I said this to you setting things up as before we hit record, is Lorenz Larkin, who, as they talked about in the broadcast, way back when, used to fight at light heavyweight. <laughs> I mean, I remember Lorenz Larkin in the Strikeforce Challengers days when he was coming up and and fighting guys like John Vellante, and getting a win over Nick Rossborough, and then getting in there with former Strikeforce light heavyweight champion Muhammad Lawal, his first professional loss eventually overturned, coming to King Mo. And then it was like, okay, and, and when you saw him in that stage, you were like, this dude really should be fighting at middleweight, because he's, he's not a big guy, he's 5'11", doesn't have any kind of crazy reach, a 72-inch reach, and he always just looked a little doughy. He had great speed and, and a fun assortment of kicks that he still has. But you kind of looked at him and were like, you know, middleweight's probably better for him. Makes a move to middleweight, goes out and gets a decision win over who? Reigning UFC welterweight champion, <laughs> goddamn Robbie Lawler. <laughs> and then he comes to the UFC, he struggles at middleweight, goes one in four in the division and decides, 
I'm going down to welterweight. And good Lord, has he looked good since going to welterweight. It's one of those things that his last fight against Albert Tumanov, he didn't look great. It was an awkward fight that, to me, could have went either way. It was a split decision. Um, Tumanov's a tough guy to fight. He's a, He's got a weird style. He's a good counterfighter. We saw in this fight against Jorge Masvidal, that's what Larkin prefers as well, is to sort of use his speed to play off what you offer him. Um, but a dude that, like, you see him in there and he throws some of these combinations and you see the speed and you see how well... He moves and fits in this division. And for me, it was a, how in God's name did this guy ever used to be a light heavyweight? Yeah. Like, who was in his corner that wasn't like, you know what? Maybe we need to go down two weight classes. Yeah, it's the Rumble Johnson syndrome <laughs> there for, for it's the rever- It's the reverse Rumble Johnson. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Lorenz Larkin looked fantastic in there against Jorge Masvidal, who you know, is a very tough fighter to, you know, kind of deal with as well. He's got a lot of tricky boxing in his arsenal and a, and a very solid wrestling base. Um, Lorenz Larkin did a lot of great things against him. And I think it was just one of those performances that kind of, you know, kind of solidified that this is the division where he belongs. And it'll be interesting to see who he gets moving forward. I mean, like you said, the fight with Albert uh, Tumanoff, that's another kind of coin flip fight in a lot of ways to me. It wasn't, you know, necessarily a blowout. I, I think it could have gone either way. So I'm looking at it like, you know, he's he's been doing very, very well, pretty much beat all of his opponents um, in that in that sort of time that he's been in the welterweight division. So um, I'm looking forward to see who he's going to get uh, in the next coming months. Uh, who who is out there available for him to fight. But I think the thing with Lorenz Larkin is um, I'd like to see, you know, him kind of keep fighting guys who are going to stand with him. I don't really, you know, particularly, you know, and, and I know as, as he gets closer, you know, to the, to the title picture, it, you know, that, that sort of stuff goes out the right. window and you fight who the UFC damn well, you know, give you, but um for now, I'd, I'd just like to see Lorenz Larkin fighting more fights like a Jorge Masvidal type of guy, um, someone who is going to mix it up with him because, you know, you can put him in against a grappling specialist, but it's probably just going to make it, you know, a fight that nobody wants to really watch. And I think at this point in his career, Lorenz Larkin, you know, he's 29 years old. He's still, you know, got time to build and, and kind of develop it at, at this you know, weight class. So I'd like to see him just get, you know, a couple more fights against some, you know, exciting guy in that welterweight division. No shortage guys who would be willing to stand and bang with, with Lorenz Larkin. So I think that that's the route that they should take with him moving forward. Well, and it speaks to something that I talked about on my about last night recap that is up now on keyboard Kimura about this fight. And, or not about this fight, about this event. And it pertained to the middleweight fight between Chris Camozzi and Vitor Miranda, which was a really fun, entertaining trap between two dudes that no one expects to be contenders, but consistently can go out there and have good, entertaining fights. And you and I have talked about it on this podcast. I've written about it on the blog, Ad Nauseam. You need guys like that. You don't always have to be 
focused on, okay, where does this guy go next? And we need to move him up the ladder and we need to make sure that he's getting these different stylistic challenges. Sometimes you just need to put Lorenz Larkin in fights that, as you said, are super fun to watch and he can just go out there and throw cool kicks and they can trade leather. The same way you do it with Chris Camozzi and Vitor Miranda. The same way you do it with Paul Felder and Josh Berkman who went out there and just punched each other in the mouth a bunch of times. You need fights like that. Obviously, you want there to be stakes in the big fights, in the fights that are garnering the most attention. But not every fight has to be the, oh, he needs this one to move forward in the division. Sometimes it can just be a fun fight and we can get to moving forward in the division down the road or not at all. I'm with you. Give Lorenz Larkin something fun next time out because he. this was fun. I, I want to see... I mean, ultimately, we watch fights for entertainment and enjoyment. Yes, as people that cover the sport, we know there have to be stakes involved. But I want to just see a good night of fights on a Sunday night if I'm going to kick back for six hours and change. And this was a good night of fights. So I got no complaints about my Sunday. What about you? No, not at all. Not (laughs) at all. (laughs) Well, we will get out of here, guys. We appreciate you checking out the podcast as always, you can follow us on Twitter. He is Pat Shiviklinski, C-W-I-K-L-I-N-S-K-I. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite sound, it doesn't quite spell out the way it sounds, but we give it to you every week so that you can follow <laughs> Patrick. You can follow me at Spencer Kite, K-Y-T-E on Kite. As always, we thank you for listening. We will be back probably in a couple of days because... There's no rest for the wicked. UFC 199 on Saturday night from the Fabulous Forum in Inglewood, California. Two title fights, a stacked main card, some good prospects. So plenty for us to discuss back here on the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio later in the week. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you then. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Keyboard Kimura. Kimura.